Hi everyone and welcome to the Spencer Lodge podcast in partnership with Najahi Events. More about them later. Today's guest on the podcast is a British multi-award winning photojournalist and filmmaker. The subject of her work is human rights and social justice, having focused on children behind bars in the Philippines, runaway teenagers in the UK, rape survivors in South Africa and human sex trafficking in India. She is determined to shed light on the disturbing truth around India's subculture of sex trafficking, and she spent six months undercover in Kamatipura in Mumbai, gaining access to the second largest sex district in Asia. Her book, Taken, exposes sex trafficking and slavery in India with the hope to raise awareness and make a change to protect the young girls that have fallen victim to this monstrous trade. She has also created the documentary Caged Until Broken, Life for Mumbai's Prostitutes, which has over 12 million views on YouTube. I can't begin to imagine the things that she saw whilst undercover for that six-month period, and it's completely unimaginable what these poor young girls are going through behind closed doors. Thanks to her, these issues are being acknowledged, but there is still a long way to go. Please welcome the incredible and very brave Hazel Thompson. Well, Hazel, thank you so much for coming to take, coming to take the time on the show today. We've been talking to a lot of people recently about similar subjects that we're going to talk to about uh, talk to you about tonight. And to be honest with you, some people really enjoy listening and learning about what's going on from the experiences of others. Some people shy away from it and probably think they're facing enough difficulties in their life as it is. But hopefully tonight we can go into some some more detail and maybe you could just be open and honest and frank and maybe no holes barred and just maybe we can share with the audience some truths about the experiences that you've had. But before we do, you've had a wonderful intro before, by the way. Um, tell us a bit about yourself. I say my life was kind of planned out as you are it, with my kind of background, you know, kind of chose, you know, what schools I go to and really... My family's aspirations, my family's quite traditional, my dad's quite traditional, and it was to become, I say, to grow up, go to get a good university degree, meet a nice hedge funder at university, get married, uh, move to the suburbs, have 2.4 children and do lunch at the golf club. You know, that was pretty much the expectation. But I was a very free-spirited kid. I was very curious. I've always been curious, very creative. I'd say a natural storyteller since I've, since I've been young. And um, I had, a, had a, just a curiosity. I, I have a very young memories of uh, when it, in its real heyday, the Sunday Times magazine, being fascinated by photo stories in the Sunday Times magazine. My dad had a collection of National Geographics from like literally the 1950s. And that opened up a world to me when I was younger. But really how I ended up in photojournalism was through art. During my GCSEs, I picked up a, a camera to literally what did it, do my primary stu preliminary studies docu to document ideas for my artwork. Fell in love with photography. It was a love affair for me. So from about age 14, ever since I've had a camera with me at all times, pretty much. And um, that's where the love affair began and where I started to fall in love with storytelling. And from that, I was how I got into photojournalism it wasn't because I really was following photojournalists it was just a natural 
expression of exploring the world. And it really started for me because I was dating a, a guy who became quite a successful actor a couple of years older than me. He moved to Hong Kong to kick off his career in the, in the movie uh, trade there. And I went out and took my camera, literally as a 17 year old to visit him, did a load of pictures. It was the last year before Hong Kong went back to China. And I came back and I had a little exhibition. Local newspaper came down, um, saw the exhibition and said, hey, do you want to come and do some work experience at the newspaper, which was the Croydon Advertiser. And so I literally left school, I think, on the Friday. And on, within the, on the Monday, I was working, doing work experience at this local newspaper. But at the time, local newspapers got really small, but at the time it had like 13 editions across the region. If anyone knows anything about South London, Croydon, there were some real news stories. There was kind of gang stuff going on. It wasn't just, I mean, I did real local paper, Christmas fairs and what you find in local paper, but there was also some, some real news and it was this incredible training ground for me. But my real breakthrough as I was at the local newspaper is I ended up meeting this well-known photojournalist called John Downing. He basically, um, don't know, don't know how at the time, if I'm honest, from my photography, but he saw potential in me and took me under his wing. And I, I, I was the most luckiest lady I could be in the sense of I found a mentor at a very young age who believed in me, invested in me. And he, he was at this point 35 years of being um, at the, uh, oh my gosh, I've got to tell you, went blank at the Express newspaper. You know, a real veteran. In total, I think he spent uh, four or five decades as a photojournalist and he taught me everything I know really and also the local paper but built on from that and because of that mentorship and really he believed in me and encouraged me kind of sent me on my way uh, and that was the beginning of my journey and from that I started working for the national newspapers and then started to work for international publications to I'm still doing it today let me get this right. I started, yes, it's 22 years I've been working professionally, giving my age away. <laughs> <laughs> so in those 22 years, you say you started off with somebody that took you under their wing. I'm sure there's other people along the way that have mm. inspired you. And, and when you think about photojournalism or journalism per se, some, some stay in the mainstream and, and occasionally you find people that step away from that because... They're fascinated by the atrocities, the wars, the uh, whatever may be going on around the world that may not be very normal from where they're from. And I suppose war zones is a good example of where some journalists go. It's risky from a, your life perspective, but capturing stories like that must be you know, really fascinating doing that job. What kind of stories along the way kind of started to grip you? What kind of things started to happen where you started to see things that maybe were a little bit unjust in the world or, or, or not right and you felt you compelled to or drawn to them? Mm. Well, actually, the story which I would say has consumed my life the most um, is where it began. Um, so I was doing a few assignments, um, kind of culturally interest stories, but the first assignment that really pierced my heart was going to India, and that was back in 2002. And that started because I read in a charity magazine of a little girl who was nine months old called Glory being sold 
to a brothel in Mumbai. And I remember thinking... Hold on, just say that again. Nine what years? A nine, nine years. A nine-month-old girl, a nine-month-old baby. I've, I read a story in a charity magazine of a nine-month-old baby being sold to a brothel. And I was like, that can't be happening. That, that can't be true. And so contacted the charity to learn that there was a real culture of, of children being bought. So this, this child was a daughter of a prostitute. So in India with a caste system, if you're a daughter of a prostitute, you don't really have um, any, you, you don't have options. Your only option really is to follow your mother in, into the trade. So her mother had actually died and her father was so desperate, couldn't feed the baby, lived in the red light. So literally the child went up on offer for sale to the different madams and the brothel owners. And the charity heard about it because they had programs on the ground and locals on the ground and intervened in the last minute and saved this girl. And so my journey started first in disbelief. This can't be happening. What do you mean that a, a baby's being sold to a brothel? But the reason the baby's being sold is they buy them when they're young, literally. This is like, now remember this child has been treated like a product, product to invest in. They literally keep the children until, you know, look after them, care for them. They grow up in the red light district until they are saleable. And in Kamatipura particularly, virgin children come at a real premium. So some of these children are sold as young as eight, nine years old. So the madam will keep that child and look after them and prepare them to be sold, you know, but to become a sex slave, basically. And to just give you context, in 2002... Spencer, no one was talking about trafficking. No one was, you know, this child was born into a brothel, so she was born into sex slavery. And to give you a history on India as well, which I've learned, you know, sex slavery in this area in Kamatipura where I was, Kamati means trades area, trades person. And it was a, a trades area. Mumbai was, it was a major port for the East India Company. And that area became a, with the British Raj there and the large amounts of the military being stationed in India, Kamatipura became what they call a comfort zone. And so the culture of it becoming a red light district was around it being a comfort zone for the military. Um, and there's overall, and it's something that I don't think people talk about, but from me covering this issue for literally, you know, we are looking at eight, 19 years now, I've seen this trend of... And, and it's well known in data and, and all the statistics and the reports and research that um, the biggest red light districts in the world today originally started where military are stationed. So, for example, um, Thailand and the Philippines is because people were stationed there around the Vietnamese War. The biggest red light districts now have a real history. So Kamatipura, you know, it, it was it's over 120 years old. It, it started, you know, it, it, and it still exists. And thriving, <laughs> but it, it actually it's deeply it's deeply embedded in the British history because that's part of our history. That and we even found memos just in my research over the years, you know, within military memos where they're 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 talking about procuring young girls, hiring local local Indians to procure pretty young girls for these brothels. Now that's called trafficking. So it's it's embedded. This is not a new thing. This has been going on for generations. When did you go there? So I first went there in 2002 and continued to go. Just try and describe 
Kamasi Pura to me in terms of on, on uh, 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 from a street level point of view? What, what do you what do you what do you smell? What do you walk through? What do you what do you feel? What do you hear? And and how does it make how does it how does it make you feel? <laughs> You've asked me a lot of questions there for a lot of. I describe Kamati Pura the armpit of hell. <laughs> I, I, it's a term I've used. You need to understand it's its own ecosystem. It's its own economy. It's uh, gangland. It's um, it's a war zone for these women. That's the first thing like I'll describe it. You know, often people talk about red light districts and they think they're a place of pleasure. They're not. They're a place of pain. Okay, so hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's get some perspective here. How big is it? And how many? How big how many... is it? Okay, so let me let me give you a visual context. It's actually not huge. The main heart of, of Kamatipura, the red light district, is made up really of kind of five lanes. It's a crisscross of lanes. It's very, very dense. It's not far from central Mumbai. It's not far from Central Station. It's not far from the water's edge either. So it's, so it's kind of in the heart of Mumbai. It's made up of these huge houses. And it's hard to describe. It's best to describe it like a rabbit warren because you've got these lanes going off, then these huge buildings, we, we call them, they call them bungalows. Then within these huge buildings, there's literally hundreds of room, like small, like, room studio flats that, but it goes deep and it goes back and and it's actually to describe it it's all of this place because the way it works it, it it is a giant slum let me talk through street level so we walk on the street and we arrive in Kamatipura the first thing you will see is just piles of rubbish anywhere there's animals wandering around there's people lying um just on the street on the bare grounds there's very unwell people just I mean in India is this kind of, I call it a beautiful chaos, only, but chaos anyway, but it's, it's quite chaotic. There's people, you know, it's, it's an economy in itself. You've got the taxi drivers um, dropping off customers. There's, you know, it's, it's got its own little shops and there's even little factories in there. It's its own little city within the city. So if you think of people quite visually remember the walled city in Hong Kong, it is this kind of very compressed intense environment but it's run by gangs this is where you gotta like as a foreigner if a white person walks in you are noticed straight away even if you're not a local everyone knows everyone there's watchers on the roofs watching to make sure girls don't escape there's um it's it's its own is in a way it's kind of its own country if it, you know with its own rules and if you are a girl there, so they're held inside these giant bungalows. They're taken deep inside, rooms within rooms. They, there's caged doors. They literally lock the doors. So there's different layers to it. This is what I mean by a rabbit warren. But it's so dark in places, I would have to be guided through. You can't see. You can't see your hand in front of you. And literally, it's so hot inside. There's condensation on, on the walls that it feels slimy. So it's a it's a prison. It's a prison within a prison, cage within cage. So when the girls are taken in, they don't know where they are. I, I didn't even know where I am. And I'm, you know, I kind of would have the geography of being led in. And then I'll have to be hidden down these corridors. And they they have secret, literally, they have walls hidden behind walls where they hide the girls. And then they have, like, just secret sections hidden in the roof um, where the girls are hidden away as well. So... It's not even like it, you can even navigate it because it's windy and small in places. 
because they've kind of built within these places. And these bungalows, like I said before, some of them are, you know, 150 years old. Um, my fixer, who who I used, so basically to set up the story, translate to me, was an ex, was from an ex criminal family, an ex gangster family, where they for five generations before they came out of it, um, were trafficking girls, and um, his all his aunts and grandmothers and uh, you know generations back were either madams or traffickers. In some of those old brothels, you'll find a bed that is from 1905, an old bedstand. I mean, it's that, so it's this weird ancient kind of part of the city. And then the modernization, there's no, no one's taking the rubbish away. In between the buildings and the tight, you know, you've got tight alleyways are filled up with rubbish that could go up to your head in places. And there's huge rats, rats that you have never, you think we have rats, Rats that are the size of cats. I call them, you know, there's rats everywhere, mice everywhere, cockroaches, raw sewage. So it, it, it doesn't smell sweet. It, it's hard. And that's an environment. And then these girls, to understand when a girl is brought to this environment, they don't normally know. Either There's two, way, two ways the girls enter. They're either born there. So they're a child of a prostitute. So they don't really have any other choice. So then it's familiar to them. It's the only world they know or they're trafficked in. And often these girls are from very rural, small villages. They didn't even know what sex is. And they'd be trafficked in aged, normally prepubescent. So 10, 11, very, very young. They'd be lured in either by false pretense of marriage or false pretense of work. So when they're bought here, they don't even know where they are. And they're often taken into a brothel and they have a systematic way to break these girls. They rape them to break them. So they're be taken into a brothel, raped, so their spirit is broken, and then they have this systematic way of holding them in a cage. Now, let me describe a cage to you because it took me years to find one. The girls, I interviewed hundreds of girls and they talked about it, but when I found a cage, when they describe a cage, it's actually a box. So the cage I found is literally no higher than you know, like a, a table, like a living room table. And they will be held in a cramped place where they can't even straighten their body out. And they'd be sitting in there in the dark and only taken out to either service a customer. And these are little girls or to have some food because um, they service the customers in another space. Otherwise, they'll be held in this box. One girl whose story I told um, over, uh, for my book, I told her story, was held um, for five years, that when she came out of the darkness, she couldn't, when she came into daylight for the first time, she couldn't see because her eyes couldn't adjust because she'd been held in the darkness for so long. Can you, can you tell me approximately how many girls are in there? And I know you take it from a young age, prepubescent, as you say, but what's the, what's the typical age of a, a, a popular uh, type of young girl uh, that's that, that's used like this and how many of them are in there? So just to give a bit of context, I haven't been back to Kamati Pura since I finished my book because I can't go back. <laughs> um, it's not possible to return. It's not safe to return. And so I didn't... So these stats I'm giving you were the, the last time I was there. So the last time I was there was 2013. It still very much exists, but no one really also know the numbers. And And just to say that, 
I always say that because it, it, people are so obsessed with how many and I'm like, well, no, it, it's relevant to even if there's one or two. <laughs> so just a bit. But to give the context, when I went there, there was a, a, approximately 20,000 women and children living and working in that small area. 20,000. Now, whether all those all of them are working because it's, it's, it's its own economy. And, and in a space, you know, I described a small brothel, which is... A, a small garage I don't know kind of size there may be 10 women working there and when the women have their children there'll be 10 women and their children all living in that space there's not enough beds for the women to sleep in and so so there's people that have come from all over the city in taxis that want to come and abuse these kids or these these ladies well it's ladies uh, they are often and you asked sorry I didn't answer that question they're probably I mean the girls when I was there, those girls being sold for sex as young as eight, nine. But I would say the average age, like Goody, the girl I followed for a number of years, she was bought in aged 11. So it's, it's, it's around kind of, you know, 11, 12, 13. They're young, even younger, but it's young. It's, it's very, very young. And they're bought in underage. And what's really, really interesting, because in India even though prostitution is illegal, when you go into Kamati Pura, one thing I didn't describe is the women will be standing outside the brothels. So the pimps will have them on display. But these are the veterans. These aren't the young children. The young children are hidden away and locked away, the young ones. The ones you're seeing on the street are the ones who've been there, you know, five, six, seven years. But they're only be like seven or 18. But they're the, they're the veterans. So that will kind of give you an idea. And they, the reason that you only get to evolve to stand on the street because they've broken their spirit so much, they know they're not going to run away. Because the girls describe it as an open prison because there's watchers everywhere. If you try and run away, when I was there, um, I'm, well, I remember between trips, um, my fixer literally sent me a picture of one of the girls I knew who'd been beheaded because she tried to run away and she was just beheaded on the street, that's because the pimps want fear in the girls. You know, I know girls have been thrown out the window and murdered, or they've tried to escape and they fell down the alleyway and they died. And, you know, they, um, but the girls won't run away. And they're so threatened that if they run away, that their family will come to harm or they will come to harm, let alone the major stigma that you, you can't, after you've been sold for sex, you're not going to be accepted back into your community. or um, So the girls don't have anywhere to go. That's it. You know, they feel trapped. I was interviewing a lady called Amy Stora uh, recently who works for Homeland Security in America, and she's saying to me that 500,000 um, yeah. kids are trafficked every year just in America. Yeah, yeah. it's shocking. And that, that as, as a figure, is staggering in a first-world environment. You are sitting dealing with one tiny, weeny little postage stamp area on in the center of one of the biggest cities in the world. I've got a few questions that I need to ask you before I go on to the next bit, but can, can you tell me, how did you get access to all of this? Because clearly you don't look like you fit in. Mm. So what was, what was your story to enable you to get in? I mean, I look back now and I think a lot of naivety helped. <laughs> Um, because <laughs> I look back now and I'm like, 
if I'm honest with you, Spencer, I think it's a miracle that I did get into those places. Um, but my main access was nothing to do with me. And, and I wouldn't have done what I'd done without the brave team that took the risks, who lived there, who've come out of there, um, to enable me um, to get the access. So basically, I work with an amazing charity there called Bombay Teen Challenge. They've worked on the ground. Um, it's run by a guy called Reverend Devaraj. I call him the Mother Teresa of, of Kamati Puri. He's an amazing man. And his team are pretty much made up of former prostitutes from, from the red light district um, and or former gangsters or street kids. And he just started up ground up. He actually started helping the boys at first um, when he started going there. And then um, from help, which is nearly actually 30 years that he was there. And then from helping the boys, he found out they had sisters and he learned about the girls. And um, it's really because of him. It's because of the charity work. They were so trusted and they had helped so many girls and so many of the mothers because the mothers actually wanted their children to be out. They didn't want, you know, a lot of the prostitutes want their children not to stick in the cycle. Um, it's because of Dev it's because of Devraj and his incredible team, because of the trust they have, um, and they brought me in to come and tell the stories that I was able to be there. But the the main reason I would say is, and it's not just my main fixer who's from kind of one of the most powerful families originally. So his family, as I said, had been trafficking for five generations, and then um, and his brothers were involved and cousins were everyone they had a real kind of redemptive moment where they came out of it and decided we're going to stop this. We're not going to traffic the, the children. You know, we're not going to be involved in this anymore. And actually they started becoming the rescuers and working for the charity and caring for the children. So it, it's, it's really the different team members, the, it was the, the amazing organisation um, that I was there. And then I think it was this one family because they're well known I, my main fixer, I pretty much didn't leave his side. And he gave me, um, is, I'm, I'm using, I need to say immunity. We've been, I've been in COVID times for too long. A pun, you know, uh, gave me protection, basically. But, wait, uh, but, but, but clearly you're a white face that's gone into that So I, I went so in and it, it's different now because the environment, I actually wouldn't do this now because of the environment we're in. But I went in and I... I I appeared to be like a social worker. So I was there. I, I, I didn't have my camera out at first. And because I was doing an investigation, you can't announce to the local corrupt police or the traffickers what <laughs> you're doing. Yeah. Um, but I, I, there are a lot of ethical reasons around. It, 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 you know, a lot of aid workers are targeted now and accused of being journalists. So actually now I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to do that. But at the time, that didn't put any of the, the, the social workers at risk. And that's how I went in. I, I went in uh, not as a photojournalist, but I, and then over time, I built relationships. I got to know the kids. I got to know the madams. They got familiar with me. And then I started to pull out the camera and tell stories. But one thing I just want to really highlight is, um, is the protection of, you know, these are women at risk and they're very vulnerable. So everyone that I, I photographed, the women and the, were very aware of why I was there. They knew exactly what I was doing and I had their full permission. Um, and spe specifically the women's stories I focused in, they, gave, they wanted to tell their stories because they wanted it to change and it to not to happen to any other women. Um, so uh, they chose to show their faces and they chose to share their stories 
um, because they want to change, which for me is the, like that is they're the they're the brave ones. They're incredible to take such a risk. So um, in all of this, the, the only people who didn't really know who I was, was the traffickers and the pimps and, and the, the the ones running the slave trade. But yes, the girls and, and everyone else I was there really uh they were the ones aiding me to get the story because they wanted it out and they didn't want any more girls taken and they uh they i think there's been a complicity uh an apathy there um especially cultural in that the women in the red light district just were not valued so i think they felt like no one was fighting for them i mean i'll give you an example off the record i spoke to a police officer once and he i said to me but prostitution's illegal why don't you shut down the red light district and he said oh yes but uh if 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 the red light district district didn't exist the the men might you know rape my wife or or my children so this needs to exist to meet the needs of the men Uh, things are really changing evolving there's much more awareness now but at the time that was kind of the attitude these women were not seen as valued human beings that hadn't, who were tricked, lied to and trafficked into this area that didn't choose to be there and they're actually enslaved, but the they haven't been, they weren't seen at the time I was there. Talk to me about the bigger problem. You, 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 you've got this tiny little area in India. There's clearly many other areas across the, the, the cities in India and other countries as well. How much research have you done to understand the gravity of this issue maybe just in India, let alone the rest of the world? And what, what kind of news sources or information have you followed um, since being exposed to something that I'm trying to get, I'm trying to imagine it and, and I can't? Um, so, I mean, I try and get my data um, from as much research as I can get. So I'm o- often um, looking to find the, la- the latest research from a university or statistics, but... To be really honest, it's very hard to get data on an underground criminal, you know, it's, 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 it's a a criminal activity. It's organized crime. So, um, those stats, it to be very bang on. I mean, the modern, the modern slavery index says, you know, the most slaves actually are in India. So there's, you know, it's a very, very high percentage. In terms of stats at the time, I was very localised when I, I looked at this book, except a couple of my girls, I did travel to the south of India and to Nepal because I retraced two girls' stories who were trafficked. One they were from... bringing them in from Nepal as well. Yeah, yeah. So, so you need to understand, in India, the girls are trafficked not only domestically, so inside the borders... Um, but they're also taken from Nepal, from Bangladesh. And there's real little hotspots where they come from. In the original days, there's even a line, a, a lane called White Lane when it was when it was there during the British Raj, because they were getting women actually from European descent, even into the red light district to comfort the men. Uh, to service the men so there's even the history of a white lane like you could so <laughs> but yeah no it's cross-border very much a problem so a lot of girls from Nepal a lot of girls from Nepal and um so so and and the girls are literally the traffickers basically um it's a cross-border um it's domestic and the it, it's it's still a major major problem and, and I I do feel 
um, in India, there's still a lot more, you know, everywhere there's lots to be, a lot more to be done. But I think since then, I have become obsessed. I've looked at the issue of trafficking, human trafficking, not only for se- just for sex, but labour in eight different countries now. I'm currently investi- on investigations in the UK, in the US. And this is, you know, to really highlight, this is not just a problem in India. Trafficking is happening in every country. Um, sex trafficking, especially, one thing that I've really noticed, if you ask what I've seen in the last 18 years, you know, with the level of awareness, because I'd say since about 2008, there's been a really good level of awareness around trafficking. You know, it, it's very much become kind of um, a hot topic, really. And what I have seen is you would hope then, right, that with all these people are starting to get programmes in place, there's amazing organisations fighting it, you would hope the numbers would decrease. I actually feel it's increased. And the reason being is uh, I think the demand is being driven and I, I am seeing a direct correlation with pornography driving that demand. And, and to put that in context, when I first really saw this was 2010, I went to South Africa and I was with the police there raiding brothels, looking at the issue of women being trafficked around the World Cup. So trafficking, women are often brought in cross-border or domestically, but literally women are brought in to fill the brothels around military bases and around sporting events. These are some of the trends that you see. And I'll never forget when I spoke to a madam, I went to do an interview after we had done a raid on her brothel. And this was a high-end brothel in terms of it was in a million pound house. And I, I chatted to her and I'm like, so tell me a few things. Firstly, where are you getting these girls? Where are you finding them? And she'd go, oh, that's easy. Um, I, I just find out who's locally failed their exams, their matric, their GCSEs, you know, or whatever. <laughs> I'll find out who failed and I'll, I will go and find them. <laughs> and I'll have a chat with them and say, hey, if you come and work for me, you're, you're, you can earn quick and easy money. This will give you a future. So she's basically, you know, she's coercing them in. That's the first thing. Then I was like, well, the Johns, because we, when we were there, we found a couple of Johns who, you know, could be a guy I would meet in a bar, an average bar in London. And I'm like, what about the Johns that are coming? And she goes, well, actually, with the internet and so much pornography being on the internet, she goes, in the 10 years that I've owned this brothel, so from 2000 to 2010, I have definitely seen an increase of men who've never been to a brothel before. It's not, they, but they want to come because they've got addicted to porn online and they want to just act out what they've got to do addicted online because they can't do it with their girlfriends or their wives. So that, that's why they're coming. And so that's a driver. That's a really clear driver. And then this is a bit that just breaks my heart is then she goes, yes. And um, it's definitely become more violent. And it's definitely the demand is for younger because of the addiction online, because the accessibility to child porn. So what I'm starting to become, you know, Spencer, for years, I've been at the bottom of the river seeing these children, these women picked out the bottom of the river. What I'm becoming more and more interested in is what's driving this in our society. What is it about our society that this is not on the decrease, this is on the increase? Or is actually pornography grooming our young men towards, you know, it's not just people talk about that often in pornography, the girls are actually trafficked. Yes, they are. Many of them. If you look at Pornhub at the moment, um, 
all these sites, OnlyFans, recent, you know, documentaries and investigations have found that there's underage girls on there and, you know, there or a recent Pornhub, a, a girl, you know, she was basically raped and, and the video put up, right? So we know that as a fact. But actually, what is it doing on the longer term effect? Because at the moment, what are the drivers that the demand should be going down? We need to look at what is it that we're not, we've got to hit the demand. We've got to make people realise. People know that there's more of awareness that some of these women are trafficked. They may not go to a brothel, but what about when you're watching porn, you're actually funding that industry. You know, we talk, we worry about the clothes we wear on our back. We worry about who, where is that piece of clothing made in, in that factory? Is that someone who's been into forced labour? We're starting, in a good sense, <laughs> to question our food sources. But actually, what are the drivers behind sex trafficking? And I think it's something really important that we, uh, we need to start really, and safeguarding, you know? Are we grooming people towards it? Who's, who's, who's res I think everyone has a part to play in being responsible. You know, I've got two daughters, one's 19, one's 21 years old, okay? One of the worst things I could ever imagine seeing is on Instagram, a picture of those girls in their bikinis, okay? Or blooming, giving it the old cleavage shot from the phone up there, you know, mm, all that kind of stuff. But that goes on like crazy. And so why are they doing it? To get attention. Yeah. All right. I want attention. So yeah. I'm going to do this to get attention. I mean, why does makeup exist? You know, yeah. really? Why does it exist? You know, to get attention. So, so... That, that that that's a problem as well as far as i see it because yes it's, you know the uh, you know the, the movie fellas. sex sells everything is in the sense of uh, and i agree there's a there's a lots of drivers there's lots of drivers i mean i i don't have i think where i'm seeing is i'm literally talking direct from experience that here i am in the brothels and i'm hearing the madams tell me you know basically this is a driver and then then and then the kid, and then the young girls, Spencer. This is the worst thing. The young girls tell you, the ones who've been in it for years, it's getting more violent, you know, because people are seeing BDSM and fetish. But it's not just that, but it's also just this overall violence towards, you know, it, it's, I don't know, this, I, I think things are backfired. There's so much objectivity that the girls are saying, it, you know, it's getting even more violent for, the, for the, them, their experiences. Yeah. When I was young, we were in Nigeria and I was in the car driving down the road and on the radio, someone said, Can please, the person who owns or is responsible for the dead body under the bridge, please remove that body. Now, my dad, my, my, my dad was, I was like, dad, 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 what's that about? What's that about? And, and it still to this day, I must have been 10, 10, 11 years old. Still to this day, I remember that really clearly. It really kind of, penetrated me as something around the value of life yeah in a in a developing country or a third world country it was almost like is life worth less is life perceived to be worth less in different places around the world and in in the west is life perceived to be worth more potentially and does that have any impact at all well um, i think uh, and um, you know we're from britain it's an imperialistic mindset. I think there is, you know, our whole history is is deep rooted in slavery. 
it's in our education system. It's in, you know, even the way we're taught history. We're not, you know, you learn about African history. It's, in, it's white history in Africa. You don't learn about in our curriculum um, the, the history of the great kings and queens of different African nations. Like, like it's from a very, so yeah, I think um, we, we do have uh, an entitlement. I do think there is a Western approach, but what I'm talking about is deeper than that. It, it, there, of course, all that, every country, there's a cultural nuance, which will, in everything, will have an effect on a driver. So particularly in India, um, you know, the value of women is different, I, I believe, here, than here in the UK in terms of what I have seen firsthand as a journalist. So, of course, that's a driver. But the fact is, this is not down to one culture. The fact is, just deep to a human level, whatever cultural background, whatever nation you're born in, I don't, I think when you start trading humans, either for labour, you start trading flesh for labour to get your needs met, at the cost of someone else's life, at the cost of their dignity, at the cost of their value for you to gain. So in sex, to have your need met or in labour, to get your product made cheaply. That is the root of the problem. And it's, we're not, I don't believe humans should buy and sell each other. I don't believe a human life, a human life is too valuable. And, and that is ultimately, you're gonna have all the cultural nuances and you know, all of these things are very, very important. But I, I think ultimately that little girl is someone's daughter. And they're not there by choice, either because they're born into it or they're trafficked into a situation, for example, Kamatipura. So like Goody, this girl who, who I've spent years following and was a main, she was the main, one of the main characters in this book I did. And, you know, she was trafficked aged 11. You know who trafficked her? It was her mum's, it was her neighbour who she grew up next to. She was from a family of 13. Again, many, many people are trafficked, women and children from where there's not economic opportunity. Someone promises an economic opportunity. She was promised, you know, she was a very, she's a very beautiful girl. She could be in Bollywood movies. And her, this neighbour came to her mum and said, hey, you know, I can get her a job to be a housekeeper in Mumbai. They take her to Mumbai. She's never been to a city before. She's from a small village outside Kolkata. And they take her in, they drag her, um, actually they first took her to a salon, did her hair, drag her into a brothel, the madam and the madam's daughter hold her down by her arms and her legs and she's so violently raped that she ends up in hospital for three months. Then they take her and put her in a cage and she was in and out of that cage to service men, to meet their needs, not valued, not seen as someone's daughter, but to have a need met. And this is where I, I, to get down to in terms of sexual exploitation, there is many myths and misunderstandings. Like I said earlier, a red light district isn't a place of pleasure in my opinion, it's a place of pain. I don't know, and there are very small percentage of people maybe choose to go into prostitution, but I don't know many girls. Do your daughters lie in bed at night and dream of selling their bodies? You know, and you, you take, you know, it's, it's, 
that's what I'm taught. That's the that's the route where it's like this is wrong, but we 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 look away, we allow it to continue. And this isn't just happening at Martipura. This is happening right around the corner where I live, right around the corner where you are in Dubai. This is a worldwide problem in the sense of we're buying other humans to meet our needs, and 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 are they there by choice? When you speak to men, men are saying, you know, if men are open enough, men are open enough with me sometimes in conversation to say, yeah, I, I, I use prostitutes, but it's great. I'm helping them. I'm, I'm, it's a trade. I'm giving them a, an income. And I, I'm, not, I'm not talking about, but it's like, well, how do you know that? Because the percentages I found, you're asking about numbers. I mean, in Kamatipura, I don't think I met one. I didn't interview one girl that chose to be there. Not one. And I was going there for 11 years. So, you know, it's a very small percentage. And I think it's slavery. It's ba- it is slavery. They say it's such a big industry by comparison to drugs because you can only sell a bag of drugs once. Yeah. And you can Human sell again and over, again and again. Over and over. In Kamatipura, there's, there's so many people involved. It's the people that gain the money because the business. It's not only the trafficker who brings them in and the pimp getting their interest. Um, the police get their bribes and, you know, the runner who brings the food every day and the corrupt doctor um, giving the forced abortion or, you know, everyone is making money. It's, it's, it is exploitation. And, you know, the amount of people involved with one person being trafficked is it's quite shocking. How, as passionate as you are, okay, mm. and considering the scale of the problem, how... Or where do you even start? Well, for me... Imagine if we could get... Imagine if you and I could get 500 people together and say, right, we we all felt exactly the same. We got them into a a conference room in a hotel and we said, right, this is the plan. I think the first point is start where you are, whichever country you're in. So, um, you know, if you're in the Middle East... Start looking at there is amazing organizations globally. I mean, I could I could list off one of the biggest organizations that I think is incredible, which is in multiple nations is IJM, International Justice Mission. Incredible. It, hold on, they let's have make a, sure everyone can hear that. International, International Justice, Justice Mission. Mission. Okay. They have a thousand abolitionists around the world. I have crossed their paths over the last, you know, 18, 19 years. I've crossed their paths literally helping not only doing aftercare of for example, Philippines, I was raiding cyber sex dens, finding eight, nine-year-olds in cyber sex dens, doing the aftercare. But they're going in and bringing long-term change within governments, helping the police, training the police. It's long-term change. There's so many things we need to look at. We need to look at the drivers, what's happening in the localised country. So how do we bring change? Find out what's exactly happening where you are, where you live. What are what are the local organisations? Because uh, trust me, there's ama- there there really are globally amazing organisations. In the UK, um, there's another organisation called Justice and Care. Again, they're going upriver, looking to change policy. Looking, um, they're creating um, navigators to get into the police. You know, there's people who are um, at every stage trying to improve this very broken system. But overall. We need to start, this is what I'm talking about, of like looking about what am I doing in my daily life that might be feeding this? In the same way, looking at our clothing or our food sources, I think what people don't realise on a localised level is how close am I to that supply chain? <laughs> you know, that's where, that, how close am I to that supply chain? So I'm going to say now, if, if, you know, you are watching porn, you're, you're in the supply chain. It's looking at what you can do 
I believe, Spencer, I believe we all have something in our hand. I'm just a photographer. I'm a storyteller with a camera. And I took my camera and I went out and I've told stories about stuff that gets me angry where I want to see justice. I've just taken my skill. I'm not a researcher. I'm, I don't work for the police. I've just taken my skill to tell stories. I think my question would be to anyone listening is what have you got in your hand? If you're an entrepreneur, can you get behind giving monthly to an incredible organisation? Spencer, you were telling me you're behind an incredible organisation that you're impassioned about. Get behind it. Do fundraisers. There are so many small organisations, especially at the moment, I would say go for the grassroots that really need support, especially coming out of this pandemic. See what you can do. I mean, we all can do something, you know, from small to big scale, whatever your school is. I remember um, I was at Fashion Week in Paris last year, pretty much this time last year. And I met a young model, you know, really sweet guy. And I remember he said to me, I get this often. I want to go in and I want to rescue the children and the young women. I want to raid the brothels. Where should I go? How should I do this? And I said, well, there's people already doing that. You know, you do you have that skill set to go in and that expertise. And I said, you know, you don't have to go and do five years of training with a specialist police force. Or I said, you're a model, you're an influencer and you've got fashion brands and you're working for some of the biggest brands. What can let's start where you are like what, what have you got in your hand? Um, I bet you could do some amazing fashion shows to raise awareness and show some films and invite a local charity. We all have a role to play. And I feel there's some amazing charities. Uh, often we want to be the hero as well. And, and there are so many indigenous, you know, local charities who have been doing the work quietly that don't have a big website or a podcast. You know, they just... They've just been beavering away, like Bombay Teen Challenge. They've just been years faithfully walking streets, helping the children, helping the mothers. Get behind organisations like that, the, the, the people who are already there. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. I think, I think that would be where I'm like, that's the best thing people can do. We, could, we can sit and talk about this for hours. And uh, I think I'd like to get you back on the show to go into a bit more depth about the practical steps that maybe we can take. And this idea that you say at the end here is a good start, but maybe we can create a plan and create a podcast around a plan of action that people can take some actual steps and give people some concrete, you know, you just talked about Ben Influencer just now, that's a great example. Give people some concrete steps that they can follow. And maybe we can put together a list also Okay, maybe you could actually do me a favor and send me a list um, of the names of the organizations that you know. And if you, I know that might seem a lot, but if you could send me a list, we could publish, totally. we could publish that list with the podcast and put that out to our audience as well. And that might just give them a start, you know, to be able to click a link to see what's going on and say, right, maybe I can get in there. And it, as you're right, if you're an entrepreneur, it could be some money every month. It, it could be a couple of hours of your time every month. It could be, you know, a million different things, social media influencing. Yeah, website, help someone build their website. Yeah, whatever. Absolutely. We the, all the, have, the, we all have a skill. We've all got something to live. Um, and I have a community of people that, I, that, that are, are part of the podcast audience, but also part of my following. And I know for sure there'll be people in that audience that want to do something after listening to you. Hazel, I can't thank you enough for coming to share your story, but also I love your passion. It's absolutely infectious. And don't you ever stop being you and doing what you do. And thank you so much for coming to join us today. All right. Thanks, Spencer. Thank you for having me and just showing such interest and passion in the issue because if there were podcasts like this, I wouldn't get to tell the stories and keep telling them. 
um, for all the women and the children. I've, I've carried these stories for a long while. So thank you for inviting me to come and share today. Why, oh, why, oh, why is this problem not being addressed? I brought you guest after guest after guest, sharing their knowledge, their experience, their information of third world as well as first world countries that suffer this type of problem. We all can do something about this. Turn a blind eye to it and it makes you just as bad as the rest. So please try and do something positive. Try and make some form of commitment towards this very serious subject. So it's always important to mention people that you partner with and partners for the podcast are Najahi events and Najahi tribe. Now Najahi sounds like an unusual word and it is, but it's Arabic for my success. And Najahi have brought some of the world leading public speakers, motivational speakers, inspirational leaders across to Dubai over the course of the years and Abu Dhabi, mind you. And Najahi brought, I don't know, people like Tony Robbins, ever heard of him? Okay, Nick Vujicic, no arms, no legs, no worries. Lisa Nichols, Prince EA, Jay Shetty, uh, Alicia Keys, and people like this. And they bring them in and they run events. And from those events, we go and we learn from these incredible people. On top of that, they launched the Najahi tribe recently, where they have a collective of the world's greatest trainers, that literally you can join, become a member of, take advantage of a training from all of these different people, like real experts in their field. I've got a sneaky suspicion I might be one of them as well. But anyway, <laughs> hopefully you will go and check them out for me because you enjoy these episodes of the podcast. And remember, it's always team effort and I can't do it without the support of these people. So go check out Najahi Events, N-A-J-A-H-I events.com. If you're listening to this episode on iTunes right now, please leave me a five-star rating. If you're listening to it, however, on any other podcast app, whether that's your SoundCloud, your Spotify, etc., do me a favor, give me a follow. If you can leave comments, leave some. The benefit is that other people get to hear this podcast if you support it. So please do that for me. I'll look forward to seeing you on the next episode.